You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 118, Slavery, From Compassion Fatigue to Empathy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And as is always the case, Sandy is hard at work being in four or five places at once around the world and is actually joining me virtually uh, today from another spot in Orange County. Sandy, always glad to uh, always glad to be with you. It's great to have this conversation, Dave. Well, and this has become, unfortunately, a pretty timely conversation, things that are going on in the world, Sandy. And, you know, we talk often about slavery and the, uh, the implications of slavery and the complexity of slavery in today's modern world. And uh, what we don't, well, the word we have not used as much on the show, but is certainly relevant to this conversation and certainly relevant to what's going on in the world right now is refugees. And many of the things that are going on, um, you know, especially in the Middle East right now that are affecting many of us. And the conversation has migrated to many other places in the world about refugees. And uh, we uh, thought this would be an important place to visit today uh, because it's certainly top of mind for us with the current news. And Sandy, you've also been doing some some reading and some research on this, uh, and and I know been thinking about this a lot as well. Well, it doesn't take a lot of understanding to connect the dots because the increased risk of refugees for all forms of trafficking is huge. They're in a place where they have no options. They're, they're spending whatever savings they have to get a place in a boat that is overcrowded. Um, a week ago, 43 people died when it capsized and 17 of those were children. So people take heavy risks. If someone offers them a job if, and, and they may, it may be fraudulent, it may be labor trafficking, it may be sex trafficking. And so how do we respond to that overwhelming refugee crisis that increases the number of victims just waiting for a trafficker to offer hope and a dream to? And this is something that is certainly an issue you've done a lot of thinking about in the past, Sandy, and we are going to uh, share a conversation today that's been previously recorded. Um, but you've also been doing some reading very recently on this, and I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the things you're discovering just in your own your own research and your own quest to understand more about the current issue. I read a book last week called Where the Wind Leads, and it's by medical doctor Vin Chung, who was a three-and-a-half-year-old child, child refugee during the Vietnamese boat people crisis. And now he's a Harvard grad and giving back to his community. But I read this book of his story and realized that for a three and a half year old, can you imagine how he saw the world, how he experienced pirates boarding the little boat that 
that didn't even have an engine and they were floating on the water. If we understand those experiences, we move from compassion and compassion fatigue to empathy. The story of one person. I can't impact the entire world, although, you know, I'm, I'd like to try, but I can listen to the story of one. I can make a difference for one. And if we begin to move away from just compassion into sincere empathy, and, and it starts with sympathy, it starts with seeing the pictures of, of children um, being pulled out of those boats on the islands in Greece and wondering what will happen to that child because they don't have any options. So I was recently very pleased to co-present with our friend Shima Hall. She's been on this show before, and she wrote her book, um, Hidden Girl, so that we could understand what it meant to her to be taken as a child slave labor trafficking victim. The book is now available in Spanish. We'll put links to that in the show notes. But we'd like you to hear from her, one person, what it was like to be taken as a child slave. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Shaima Hall, and um, I'm here to share my story with you guys. A lot of people get to hear all about the laws and how everything to prevent human trafficking and how to help everything. A lot of people don't get to hear from uh, somebody that's been through it. And um, as much as it gets, it's hard every time I do it, I like to do it. I like to have people to be, um, hopefully be the voice for somebody else. Um, I'm going to start from where I'm from. I'm from Egypt. I was born in Egypt, and um, I'm number seven of 11 kids, and um, big family. And um, I lived in a, a small apartment that my parents had one room that shared even with a different family. And um, it was poor, and sometimes we didn't have food or dinner at times. But it was home, it was my family and brothers and sisters, and I was happy with it. I was um, thankful for what I had. Um, and in Egypt, I'll tell you one law that I know. Um, it's when you're in age 14 years old, you can work. You could... Um, find a job, somebody else can give you a job, or your parents can send you off to whatever job they want you to take. And I, my job came a little early when I was eight years old. My sister worked for these really wealthy family in Egypt. I mean, when you go to their house, their house is like a castle, it's amazing. And um, my sister worked for them as a maid by choice. She was the oldest, actually, of the whole family. Um, and one day, my mom used to go there and say hi to her and visit her or get money from her. And um, I'll go with her, talk her with my little sister. One day, I went with her 
like every normal visit, this time they actually called her to come. And um, I went with her, just like normal, to help her with my little sister. And they, um, it was a lot of yelling in the room and going back forth and um, a lot of, um, of course, disagreements. And it came to the point where they said, okay, you have two choices. Your daughter can go to jail for the money she stole from us, or you can replace her. And um, very, very quickly, um, my mother had um, given me to them. And from a visit that I went with the clothes that's on me and that's it to help with my sister to a visit that I never went back home from. And my job was to repay my sister's debt for steal money from these people. And from now, I belong to them. I was their property. And I worked for them in Egypt. I was to help with the little boys. They had five kids, three daughters, older ones, high schools, middle schools, college. And they had two twins, uh, the boys, which is what I kind of helped with more, other than helping cleaning and dishes. But in Egypt, I wasn't the only one. I was the youngest, but everybody else there was by choice. They were actually getting paid. Fair wages, pretty sure not. But anything to help, I guess. And um, I worked for them for a while in Egypt. I believe it was a year when I worked for them in Egypt. Um, And then I saw my parents one more time at their house when they decided that I'm not done paying my debt for my sister, so um, they were moving to the U.S., and they are taking me with them. Um, I don't know because it was easy for to get a child to the U.S. than an adult, or is it, I'm pretty sure, more of me need to pay my debt. Um, I met this guy in Egypt where once I never met him before was um, he were to get my um, my two month visa to the U.S. and um, I was to act I was his becoming adopted daughter and if anybody would ask me any questions or to um, say anything to me I learned his name and um, I was just to be told I'm a becoming daughter. Um, actually, no one asked me any questions. It was very easy. Um, he gave the guy money, and I got my visa. It was that fast and easy. I took a picture, and they posted it on my passport. Um, I remember when I told my parents my goodbye um, before I left on an airplane with this guy. Um, I don't remember much of what we said, really, but I remember their faces. Um, And that was the last time I ever seen them. As much as it was really easy for them to give me up to them, I still can't imagine it. And um, 
From there, I went with this guy on the plane. He sat in the front. I didn't see him the whole time on the plane. And I sat in the back. Um, I only saw him when we changed planes. And um, he hand me over when we got to the U.S. And one thing, um, I don't really mention it that often, but it's when I got to the airport, this guy looked at my password, and then he looked at his, and he saw this white guy next to me, and then he saw this girl that looks Hispanic, and kind of like, what? And then he's like, oh, you know, and said something in English, and the guy had him my password back, and that was it. And that comes with being aware of what human traffic really is. Um, from there, he got in a rental car and had me over back to the family. They were already in the U.S. before me. They did something in Egypt that they had to just flee Egypt, and they came to the U.S. But I guess they couldn't give up their not doing anything, not um, having somebody to serve them or to take care of their needs. And I didn't know what human traffic is. I didn't know there's the wrong and right from it back then. I hardly even said a word, actually. I was just told to clean, to do this, and I did it. And I guess that's why it was probably easy for them to take a child with them. Um... I honestly didn't see myself as a child. I don't probably even knew what that is. But I remember getting introduced to the house for the first time, and this is the kids' room, this is the kitchen, this is uh, uh, the top and, um, uh, and the second floor, and this is where you'd be sleeping. I slept outside in a garage in a storage room where there was no windows, there was no uh, kind of air, nothing like that. I had a light that worked when I first got there, but it went out and never worked again. Didn't even put a light in it. I slept, I had a bed, and I had my luggage that I came in, sitting in the same spot for 22 months that I was with them and all their luggage or whatever storage they need in there, too. Um, I, my chores, when I, I got told when I was there to take care of the little twins and to help them and to um, assist them in little stuff they need and, you know, help her, the mom, a little here and there. But uh, a day later, so... My chores was to clean every inch of the house, to do everybody's laundry, to get everybody's food ready, to cook, clean, and to not sleep until the house is 100%, and to wake up the next morning early enough to get everybody's breakfast ready, get the twins ready for school, and to just be what they want you to be. I got told 24-7 from... The mom, even the little kids, knew to say it. It's, um, you belong to us. You, you're nobody. You're here to do what we tell you. I 
lived and these words almost every day. To never talk to anybody outside the house, to never speak to anybody. If the cops would ever see you, you'll get beat up, you never see your family, and you'll go to jail. And people wonder, why didn't you just walk out the door? I'm sure sometimes they weren't home. It wasn't really that easy. It was more of, um, you never know where your password is, your paper, everything. They take everything from you. And I didn't speak the language either. I was just a little kid that did what I was told and went to sleep when I was told, pretty much breathed when they were told you. I remember speaking to my parents a few times at the house. First time I spoke to them, I was like, I want to come home. And I was really sad with her. Uh, and I remember my mom taught me, she just remember, you're doing this for the family. You still have to pay your sister's debt. And um, I, I don't really like know how she did it. She had 11 kids. I don't know that helps it, but I can't imagine. Um, and then after I got off the phone, the dad was like, like, how dare you? We give you a roof on top of your head. We feed you. How I was like disrespecting them. I was like, who are you to say stuff like that, pretty much? And never again I ever said anything. When I spoke to my parents the last time, yeah, everything's amazing, everything's great. Even if I would have said something to them, nothing probably would have happened. I remember when um, I finally got rescued from everything I was going through with them. And I, I heard this really loud knock. The dad came downstairs and he you know, told me to go away. And I went to them and uh, I went to the other room and he he hear a bunch of yelling, and I didn't understand anything they were saying. And then the door slammed. A few minutes later, the door opened again, and um, I, I got pulled out of the house from a bunch of guys and women were there too, and cops. And um, I remember being so scared. I did not understand what was happening. I was... My head, like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen to me now? And um, he got this Arabic speaker guy on the phone that said, "Hey, everything will be fine. These people's gonna take you. They're gonna help you out, and uh, just go with them." And I was like, you know, not that I have anything, a say in anything really. And I got into um, a cop car, 
a marked cop car, the one thing they tell you to never ever get into, the one thing they tell you you will never see your family if you talk to them. And I went all the way from Garden Grove to Orange County, where um, they set me up in a group home there. And um, I remember I, I saw the doctor, and, um, and from seeing the doctor, I talked to the cops. And I told the cops, like, what are you guys talking about? Everything is fine. Like, these people are so nice to me. Like, everything is wonderful. And they're like, well, we patrolled the house a few days, and we saw you never leave the house. We saw you working. And no, I, I live there. I'm part of their family. And, you know, like pretty much what are you talking about? But these are the things you've been told 24-7 to say and programmed to. And um, I talked to them a few times, and still the same thing. And they finally got my parents on the phone. And they, um, my parents said, you know, what is, what is going on? And um, I kind of explained to them what's going on. And they had another Arabic speaker on there to explain to the cops what we were saying. And um, my dad was getting so upset. He was like, what is wrong with you? These people put a roof on top of your head, fed you, Hoped your sister something with her wedding, and you're doing this to them. Like, pretty much like, how dare you? And I remember just being upset and just so angry because he's not going through everything I was. He didn't see these people push me. Little kid telling me you're nobody. And My mom gets on the phone and tells me I'm going to give her a heart attack. My dad tells me I'm going to kill her. Like, and the lady, the Arabic speaker, she was like, why would you tell a child that? But I can't imagine any way them having a mercy for their own kid or how they feel. From, um, from there, I went through foster care. I went through um, three different foster parents. And I went through the system because I refused to speak to the cops. So I just went through the system. My social worker fought for me very hard to stay in the U.S. Otherwise, they will say she will just go back to where she was, or what she did, because the plan was to always try to get the kid back to their parents. And I ended up staying um, in the U.S., and I moved through foster, the foster system. And let me tell you, the foster system it is not a bad system at all. I will stand behind it 100%. It's the people that sign up for foster care. Either they're doing it for the good of the child, or they're doing it for how many beds they can fill so they can get paid for it. Some of my cases was just to fill a bed. So one of my cases was just to, um, I didn't agree with the religion um, uh, background. 
and I didn't want to be what somebody else wanted me to be again. And at this time, I was becoming a, a teenager, and I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to know everything, and I understood that there's something called our rights. I went through public school. From there, um, my last foster, my two foster parents were Arabic because I didn't speak English at the time, and then. Um, and then from there, um, when the last one didn't work out, I got shipped from San Jose all the way down back to Orange County because I was a ward of Orange County. Um, from there, I went to my third foster parents, the last one in Palm Springs, uh, close to Palm Springs. And um, I had my hard time. I had my, um, my disbelief and my argues with them, but at that time, honestly, I just give up what really having that family figure in my life. I just wanted to become my own person, finally, not what everybody else wants for me. My case finally got reopened in 2004, again. I spoke to the cops. I finally had the courage to tell them really what's going on, what happened. And they reopened the whole case again. In 2007 is when my case ended. And um, I believe I was the first victim for Orange County to be um, the whole case being brought into the court and to um, have um, the um, the holders to be um, executed for what they did. And they plead guilty because they knew um, it's not going to be good for them because I was willing to speak up for it. Um, their mom got sentenced for 22 days for how long I was with her. And the dad got sentenced to three years. And um, they were really upset because they, I guess when they did the whole thing, they were, it was an Eid um, time, like Christmas for Arabic, and they, um, they were upset they were in court at that time. They're not with their family. They're not enjoying their life. And you took my whole childhood away from me. I don't even know what that is. You had an eight years old working for you like she was 30. But they don't care for others. People like them that can put somebody else through so much harm, they don't care. I have finally become what I want to be. A person that can speak up. I have a wonderful family. I have a daughter. I'll do anything for her. Can't imagine being apart from her. And I speak for human traffic. And Thank you. As much as this is hard, I like to do it because I hope all of you guys can be the voice for somebody else. I got rescued because somebody called the cops and said, hey, there's a little girl that works in this house day and night. 
because they saw something wrong and called for it. And we have so many signs around us that we can look and see and we can help somebody else's life, just like me. And you can tell somebody in pain by just seeing them and seeing what surround them and other people around them is like. And thank you guys so much for listening to me. I appreciate it. Sandy mentioned on the opening of this episode the importance of knowing each person's story and that connecting to us. And I hope that you found that the story of Shima Hall connects with you. It's very easy for almost all of us to hear the numbers and the news stories and not connect them with a person or an individual or a story. And so a reminder for all of us to be ambassadors of sharing stories and incidents about people and building those relationships. And if we do that, we are truly not only studying the issues, being a voice and making a difference, but also understanding and appreciating the very real human impact of slavery and refugee status that we see so much in the world today. I hope you found this conversation today helpful, uh, and we're always up for hearing from you. Anytime Sandy or I can be resourceful to you, feel free to send us an email at gcwj at vanguard.edu. That's for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone anytime at 714-966-6360. And we look forward to talking with you again in two weeks for the very next episode. And a reminder that the annual conference is coming up for the Global Center for Women and Justice. Find out more at gcwj.com dot vanguard dot edu. Have a great day.